I am going to read for us this morning. So we are reading from John 20, 19 through 23. Uh, it actually works out that I'm reading because I can say something to preface it. Um, when I read this to you, it's really important for you to understand that John goes about his gospel a little bit differently than all of the other synoptic gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, John does love to take things out of order because he's actually writing to a church community post-resurrection, post-ascension. And there's already, if you look at 1 John, for example, you're starting to see there's some weird ideas that are creeping into the church about Jesus. So he's writing his gospel to a community, a church, that is trying to combat some weird ideas, but also embolden them in their theology, embolden them in their belief. And so what I'm about to read uh, you'll be familiar with, but in the book of Acts. So he's not saying that there's two comings of the Spirit. He's just pointing out the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the coming of the Spirit are all interwoven together. And the way that you can know that is even in the book, at the beginning of the book of John, you see he kind of does a Genesis story. So he's talking about we already know the end, and he's starting with the beginning. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, good. So I'm going to read it to you. It's just short verses, but so that way it won't cause conflict, although conflict isn't a bad thing. All right, so this is John 20, uh, verses 19 through 23 on page 883, if you want to follow along. It says, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side and then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is the word of the Lord. Um. So I will revisit this passage in a minute, but I want to kind of process through some things with you. Um, specifically, uh, if you look at our liturgical calendar, um, are, are any of you familiar with what part of the liturgical calendar we're actually in? Brett would. He would. Yes, I think he would. Do you know? It was the seventh, seventh Sunday... Right. This is considered to be our ordinary time, right? So like um, when we process through the liturgical calendar, we have all these kind of markers, right? Um, but then there's this huge gap of time. There is no markers. Like if you will see on the bulletin, it'll be like seventh Sunday, and then it'll be eighth Sunday, and then it'll be ninth Sunday. Um, and so there's a reason for that. Uh, another way of saying ordinary time in the liturgical calendar is ordinary life. How many of you have an ordinary life? <laughs> <laughs> so there's something interwoven within our, our time structure uh, as a church that helps us kind of focus through what does it look like to be a Jesus follower post-ascension, post-Pentecost. Um, and that's where we have this ordinary time concept. Um, Tom, you can hit 
uh, two clicks over for me. So uh, this week, this was the question that I was asking myself in this ordinary time. Because ordinary time, I feel like, has to have some sense of structure. What does it look like, or how can I experience an ongoing, life-giving, life-altering, relational journey with God? I, I think in run-on sentences, so that's why it's really long. Um, but an ongoing, so non-stop, a life-giving, because I want it to give me life, right? That's what we've talked about for several weeks. Life-altering, the other word that I had was transformed. Um, I think the reason why I put life-altering was because transformed, there's a process, and I'm all about process and the metamorphosis of life, but I want my life to be different too, especially as I start to come into awareness of some things in my, in my life that I may not like, uh, shadows in my life, right, that we may experience. So what, what about my life can be altered? And I don't want it to be by myself, I want it to be a relational journey. I don't want to be walking this journey alone. Um, I want to do it alongside of God. I want him to lead the way, and I want people to be on that journey with me. Um, this is, I think, not because I wrote the question, but I think it would be an important question to ask regarding ordinary time. How can you experience an ongoing, life-giving, life-altering relational journey with God? So take a minute, kind of brainstorm together. What, how, would you, how could you experience an ongoing, life-giving, life-altering relational journey with God? So talk about it, and then we'll come back together. So here's my next question, because I can tell that you've all been listening to me because a lot of the answers are like plucked right from my brain, right? So what impedes me from this? <laughs> like, take a moment. I want you to go back one more, because you can lock that in your mind. What impedes me from this? What impedes you from this? You can keep that one up, but what impedes you? Talk about that. I hope that you can be honest with one another. What impedes you from this? One of the things as I was reading through, I mean, frankly speaking, I was like, I don't like, I've said this before, I don't like cherry picking verses. My comfort zone is really going through a book of a Bible, just verse by verse. Um, and so I wanted to be really careful about what passage I was going to choose this week. I didn't just want to pick something and be like, oh, well, that supports my theory here. Um, and so as I was doing that, I was reading through the epistles. So all the different letters that, that Paul or, or John or, or James, all these different letters that were written to the early church. And one of the things that really struck me was a lot of those letters covered what impedes this. I mean, I can't tell you how many times the early church would receive a letter that would be proclaimed to them by somebody that talked about these urges like that they would fall into. Another way of saying it is sin. Just these different things that were so compelling, not just distracting, like the whole a next level. It was like that, that I know this is my, my spiritual reality. I'm in Christ. Jesus loves me and I love Jesus. But I'm used to this way of life. Have you ever had that tension before? 
I'm used to this thing, but I know that's not a uh, representation of who I am. And we kind of like go back and forth, right? It's like, uh, this is my comfort zone, even though it makes me uncomfortable. And even though I feel broken in it, it's what I know. But here is this thing that can be all of this, but I have no idea what it looks like, so I'm afraid of it. I'm super scared of it, because what if I don't even like it? What if it asks something of me that I'm not willing to give? So these, uh, the, the epistles, uh, the man, they didn't pull any punches, if we were to say it that way. They were very direct. These urges, these things that you can chase after will kill you and destroy you. And that's why they emphasize so frequently, what does life-giving relationship look like? Um, hit me with two clicks, Tom, I think. Okay. So one of the things, like I said, that I noticed is uh, when, when I'm listening to you, but also reading scripture, is that what impedes us is often uh, what we do or what is done to us, right? Uh, I mean, our first start, what it, what the, the first answer in your vulnerability is, um, what is what I've done what I, or what I currently do or what is done to me. And so I thought for, before I continue, and it might be helpful uh, for the next thing, which I, I put up here. Uh, it is, let us consider, go ahead, you can, let us consider what was done for us and what we are invited into. Not just what we do and what's done to us, but what it was done for us and what we are invited into. See, that's what a large part of the epistles, and even really the gospels is all about. It's not focused so much, while it certain says, there are things that are healthy for you and things that are unhealthy for you. Over and over again, scripture talks about that. But I think the thing that's emphasized, which we call the gospel, which is what was done for us. But then also, and this is the part that I think we kind of stop. And I think maybe within the Lutheran context, it's really easy to stop at what was done for us. But there's this whole other part, and that's why I ultimately chose this passage in John, is because what we are invited into so that we could experience this life-giving, life-altering, transformative experience, journey, relational with God, right? So consider for a moment, I want you, I actually want you to talk amongst yourselves. What was done for us and what are we invited into? Remind yourselves, what was done for us and what were we invited into? We talked about some of the negative. What was done for us and what are we invited into? Okay, the first one was, what was done for us? 
Let's present the gospel for a minute. What, is, what was done for us? Sins were forgiven. How? Jesus died on the cross. What did Paula say? So you're starting to say not just this action on the cross, but also his ways and words and his life, his examples, the way he lived his life in perfection. Yeah. So he invited people into that? Interesting. Keep going. What else? What did he do for us? Okay. Yeah. He showed us the way. Showed us the way. He loved us. I think he was showing us how wrong we were living our lives. So he was contrasting what healthy and unhealthy living is like. Can I tweak what you said a little bit, Mike? Can I tweak what you said a little bit? What I see in the life of Jesus is that first he fulfilled all the laws perfectly, which nobody else can do, right? If you're the most law-abiding citizen, you still are going to fail. So he perfectly fulfilled it, but then he also pointed out to people how that religious way of living, how legalism was destroying them, that they were so focused on doing the right things that they missed the, the, the core center, which was God's love itself. So this idea of obedience for obedience sake rather than obedience out of deep expression and worship for God. Just re, retweaking it. Okay. You said you did a great, Mike. Yeah, thanks. Um, is there, what about, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, along with you said about him being perfect, he showed us how much we need So this need, this deep need. Yeah. So this idea of falling short, but, but this necessity from within us. What about uh, this invitation? What does this invitation look like? If all those things that we said are true, which they are, in some form or fashion, what does the invitation look like? I mean, what is he inviting us into? Because all those things are true, but what is he inviting us into? Intimate relationship with God. Intimate relationship with God. Okay. What else? To love one another. another. So love God, love one another. So there's this idea of the invitation into obedience and listening. Um, there's also something, uh, just verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. He invites us into peace. Um, as the Father has sent me, 
so I send you. There is a great commission verse in Matthew 28 where he says, go and make disciples. I mean, isn't that part of this invitation that he's inviting us into? Isn't just intimate relationship for intimate relationship's sake. It's also for making disciples, for letting people in on this not-so-secret secret, secret. (laughs) for them to be a part of that with us, right? Um, There's also this idea of being recipients of the Holy Spirit. I mean, here John says it in another way, but it's is that we now have the very presence of God in us, which is a whole other thing. So I thought, uh, go ahead and click one more. So I thought this is a familiar framework for many of us. Um, for some of us, it's new. But I wanted to kind of use this framework of what, as we talk about this passage, what God, the church, and the world, what does this all look like? What does it mean? What is an intimate, life-giving journey, relationship, all that kind of stuff? What does it look like in these various contexts? And um, actually what kind of spurred this message was this book that I was reading for one of my classes. It's called Reading Your Life Story by Keith R. Anderson. And, um, and I was reading something that he wrote, and I was like, oh, you, you ever read something you're like, I don't know if I agree with that. Or you, you read a word and you're like, I don't know if you think that means what you think it means. You know, it's like, That's, that can't be right. I, I'll read it to you. This is, okay, the context is about uh, spiritual mentoring. So it's journeying alongside of people as they're growing in relationship with God. Um, and he said, spiritual, spiritual mentoring takes place as one helps another learn to read in co-creative conspiracy with the Holy Spirit. Co-creative conspiracy. I was like, is that the right word? Co-creative conspiracy. Like, what do you think of when you hear conspiracy? Negative things. It's all the bad stuff, right? It was like co-creative conspiracy with the Holy Spirit. It seems like this massive paradox, okay? This is the definition of conspire. Um, Make secret plans jointly to commit an unlawful or harmful act. It's like, I don't think that's what he's trying to say. But see, there's this funny thing about language is that over time, what it used to mean doesn't mean that's what it always meant. You may have noticed uh, the, the design that I did had this, it was a Latin word. Um, and I wanted I I was so annoyed by this. I was like, I'm going to find out. I spent the next 45 minutes doing research into Conspire because I'm like that, I guess. And I'll tell you why. Because what he said afterwards was, Conspire means to breathe alongside or in cooperation with another. I was like, no, that's not the definition, my friend. But in Latin, it was. Originally, that's what it meant. Is con was with and spirare is to breathe. That's literally what it meant, to breathe with. And then it got really interesting. I was listening to a podcast with a Latin expert, and this is uh, one of the things that they said. This, the, the podcast was called Away With Words. Go ahead, Tom. And they said, the source of this term is the notion that people who conspire are thinking in harmony, so close that they even breathe together. 
Oh no, co-creative conspiracy takes on a different form, doesn't it? Because now we're so close that we share the same breath. Well, that makes sense, at least to me. If you start looking, so I know, and this is, I, I can't tell you, even five minutes before I was about to share this message, I'm going back and forth. Should I use conspire? Because we have all these negative connotations about what conspiring is. But I think one thing that the gospel does is it takes maybe what we thought to be true and turns it on a head and it says, maybe this is what it actually is. So I stuck with the word conspire because I do think that there is this breath of life that we share with God that is about co-creating. It's about seeing the newness of life in our midst, where God says, I'm going to make all things new. And I'm going to put this framework up. You can hit it one more time, Tal, just so we can have that in mind. So uh, let's go all the way back to Genesis. Okay, so this is Genesis 2. Uh, this is on page 2, Genesis 2. And it is verse 7. So page 2, Genesis 2, verse 7. So this is another account of the creation. It says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So what did God do? And what happens... that his very breath became the breath of the man. And what does it say hap what did it say ha happened after he he was breathing life into the man? He became living. Like I I'm always interested when I read these accounts cuz like no duh if you breathe life into him but the author made it a point to to say and he was living as a result of that that because of God's breath in him, he became alive. There is this word that I love, he animated us. And again, that's another, when we think animated, Disney, Pixar, all that kind of stuff, right? But he, he didn't just say, okay, now you're like this robot. Like he said, you have life that's meant to be lived. So then... Why John includes this in his gospel is really interesting because I'll read it to you again. He said, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Do you kind of see what John's doing now? John's very mindful of the beginning to the end. He knows through his relationship with Christ how this is all going to play out. And so he's pointing out a parallel between Genesis this breath of life. And what certainly the apostles, and there was more people than just the apostles, I think there were other men and women that were in the room, and so they would have experienced this breath of life. Whether we look at the Acts account, John's point here is, is that he said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you, and then he, so he commissions them, and then he gives them, or he speaks, he breathes life to them, he animates them into living. Um, I referred to this in the past as this dance of life. Um, this past Friday in the Riverside Missional Community, they uh, had a, a book discussion. 
And that book discussion was largely based on John 15. If you want to understand what it means to live this animated life, this breathed life of God, so that you're in so, so much harmony with God, look no further than John 15. In there, John, uh, John records Jesus saying that apart from me, you can't do anything. That we need his very breath of life. And I would love for you, I know that obviously Rowena and Gary were there, Ken and Judy were both there. Were the, was there anybody else that was there on Friday that are here? Okay. She was there. Oh, there you go. Talk, I mean, I would suggest talk to them about the book. If you want to understand more about John 15 or just the way of the vine. Um, but John is really pointing out here is that every single thing that we do should be encompassed by who we are. That's why I asked you, like, I mean, we have all these things that impede us from life, but what are the things that give you life? Who are you? Who are you? This breath of life that you're breathing, is it raggedy and you feel like you need an oxygen tank all the time because you're so anxious and overwhelmed? Or is every single thing that you do have the breath of life, this animated breathing that Christ gives us through the Spirit of God? I mean, it blows my mind that God loves us so much that he would give us his very presence in us. Like, does that make sense? When, even when I, when I say that, when I'm saying it and I'm hearing it back, I'm like, that's mind-blowing that he would love us that much that he would give us a helper to figure out what it looks like to be in syncopated harmony with him. Do you feel like your breathing is harmonized with God's breathing? I won't make you shake your heads or yes, no. Sometimes. Okay, so thanks, Mike, for being honest. Let's see, this is part of that relational journey. Have you ever run a race alongside somebody? Maybe it's been a while. <laughs> a couple years ago. Walking, yeah. I want to contrast two things. Uh, when you run a race alongside somebody, you're going towards a goal, right? What's the goal? The finish line. And hopefully to win the race. Usually, is it really loud or is it pretty quiet? You're hearing, it's loud because, but, but you're, yeah, you have people cheering and stuff like that, but the immediate sound that you hear is the breath of somebody. Here's an, a contrast. So that, that, that's your moving towards the end goal. Have you ever slept in the same room with somebody that snores? <laughs> Apparently there's... <laughs> There's a difference, isn't there? I mean, that person is clearly maybe struggling to breathe alongside of you, right? That's closer every moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Take all the pillows away, Mike. Uh, you see the difference between going towards a common goal in harmony with somebody running the race and then this loud, noisy, just off-kilter breathing? 
I feel like a lot of my life, well, because I have a deviated septum, a lot of my life is hard breathing. And I think in some ways it's because I don't know where I'm going. And I don't know who I'm going alongside. And the beautiful thing is, is that God doesn't just say, I give you my very spirit. He says that I'm going to give you it within the context of a people, the church. So you always have somebody to run alongside. Um, the very last psalm, and I, I wish I had noticed this myself. I noticed it in a commentary. It's on page 508. It's the very last song. It's the very last word in the psalms. And it says, I'll read it for you. This is Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let everything what? Breathe. I mean, that's a chorus. That's a harmony of praise. So there's something about this breath of life that isn't just meant to be my breath of life. It's supposed to be in harmony, not just with God, but with other people. And that, that harmony of breathing is an act of worship. So when Melanie was vulnerable with us and we listened and we were in harmony with that moment, it was an act of worship to God, like a fragrant aroma of praise. When you're with somebody in their lowest of lows, in their highest of highs, or in the ordinary time. That can be an act of worship, of praise. This is also the context where I think the multiplication of the church is taking place. And that's why we have the world here. Um, if you looked at, not in a, in a critical way, I want to be clear about this, in a non-critical way, we talked about what impedes us from life. Now consider the people in your life that maybe don't know that they can have this abiding, beautiful relationship with God in their life. How would you describe their breathing? Struggling? Labored. Labored. That's a good word. Labored. What else? Inconsistent. So maybe like it's strong for a while, but then they fall off. I put uh, rapid, strained. Again, this is in a non-critical way. But um, we, when I ask the question of running a race, when, when's the last time you've run a race? Oh, thanks, Mike. <laughs> OK, yeah. yeah two months ago. When's the last time you've had a vigorous walk? Last October. I didn't expect you all to say it. Great, thanks. Thanks for the honesty. Really getting to know each other. Um, you couldn't just run a marathon today unless you trained for it. I mentioned to you when I went on that hike with Brian. Man, I've never hiked before, so hiking, what was the mountain that we did? Yeah. He did. I was so not prepared for that moment to, to be at that, even at that altitude. And I think that part of what it means to have this relational journey with God, and, but also a relational journey with other people, is, is that 
in many ways, we're training one another. We're pointing out all the, those urges or those dis, the distractions or the temptations or the ways that we're struggling, and we're saying, instead of, hey, friend, these are all the things that you're doing wrong, because everybody loves hearing that. Instead, what life-giving looks like is I'm, I'm so compel, compelled by this love, I'm so compelled by this light that I need to know the source. I need to know why, when I'm barely able to breathe here, that you can take deep breaths and flourish. I mean, that's part of what this ongoing relational journey looks like for us. And I think, in many ways, that's what John was pointing out when he used the specific context, is that Jesus was animating them with life. He was saying, the things that I'm going to ask for you to do, you're not meant to do them alone. I'm going to give you the helper, but it's set within the context of other people to help you. I mean, if you look at uh, Paul's journey, as much as he was in alone, we would think, he always found people to walk alongside of him. One of the epistles, he's saying, yeah, it's just no big deal that I'm in jail and suffering because all the other prisoners and the jailers, they know about Jesus now. Like even in his most devastating circumstances, he was bringing people alongside in this life-giving journey. And even when he was in a really life-giving, exciting place, he was still, come on, come with me. And you see that in the life of Jesus, with his ways and his words. So it's something that I want you to consider. What does it mean to have an ongoing, life-giving, life-altering relational journey with God? An ordinary time, an ordinary life, in your day-to-day. What would that look like for you? Again, a great starting place is John 15. Uh, what would it look like to conspire with God? What is he co-creating? As the author said, what is he co-creating? What is he asking you to create alongside of him? What is he inviting you into? It's an interesting question. Let me pray for us as we uh, prepare our hearts for communion together. Uh, God, I don't know... Um, what is impeding each person in this room or what is impeding us as a community from this life-giving love that you've given us. Um, But we were transparent with one another and said there's all sorts of things that can impede us from this life. God, what does it look like for us to live in such a way that we can't do anything apart from you, that we wouldn't even want to do anything apart from you because your love is that life-giving One thing that I deeply value about this community is that we are more and more open to sharing about our struggles as well as our victories. And I know that there's um, a lot of people that are struggling right now, including myself. So God, I ask you um, uh, for all of us to be intentional about coming alongside of one another, that we would be intentional about meeting one another where we're at. Your promise is that you you breathe life into us, is that because you died on the cross, we no longer have to live in death. Death doesn't have the last word. You have the last word, and that's life. For those of us that are struggling to to know and feel your love, I pray this morning that we could be um, wrapped in your embrace of love. And that's what we could fall into, is your love. 
I'm glad for those of us that um, are trying to discern what it looks like um, to have our life changed, that maybe we're afraid of what that might mean. I pray that you would give us the, the daring hope and faith. God, as we look to the table and we see the bread and the wine, uh, the body and the blood, that we would have a reminder that we are not alone and that you did all the work. And so this breath of life that we breathe is because of your life. That no matter our situations and circumstance, is that we are not alone in it. God, I pray if there's anything in our hearts, whether it be that we're holding on to bitterness or unforgiveness, if we're holding on to um, these things that might impede us from seeing um, that work that you've done, I pray that you would help us process through that this morning and that we might be free from those things. We pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.